morning. It is good to be with you here today, worshiping our Lord and Savior together here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church. And uh, I just want to go on record again this week by, by, by saying thank you to Pastor Dave for pinch hitting for me last week. Sort of at the last moment uh, as I was recovering from what was supposed to be minor eye surgery. Um, you should probably know that about me by now, that if it's supposed to be minor with me, it probably is not going to be minor. It's probably going to turn into major. And, of course, you know the definition of minor surgery is when it's happened to somebody else. You know, when it's happened to you, it's major no matter what it is. And so it wound up being that way. But I am so grateful to all of you who have prayed for me, sent me cards, called me to ask how I'm doing. And I appreciate that very much. And, and I'm, I'm thankful for, uh, for my church family here. However, after my comments last week, the number one question that I've been asked by everybody is do I still have my halo this week? <laughs> Last week when I stood in front of you, all of you looked really shiny and you all had halos. And, and the, really the only thing that I can say to that this week is just this, I'm seeing much better and much clearer <laughs> this week. Nevertheless, it is good to be back with you and to be able to stand before you and to be able to read and study God's Word together. And it is to that point in our time of worship together that we have come this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, and I certainly hope that you do, would you please take them out and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, if you are new to Ivy Creek, if perhaps this is your first time with us, you should know that we are systematically working our way through the Gospel of Mark on Sunday mornings here. And, and we, we began this study earlier this year. We're going to continue it, the Lord willing, until we get all the way through the 16th chapter of Mark's Gospel, ever how long that winds up taking us. And uh, the last time that we were together, we looked at the Gospel of Mark a couple of weeks ago, uh, there kind of at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. And we, we recognized that Jesus had gotten himself crossways with the Pharisees, with the religious leaders of the day. His run-in with them had begun back in chapter 2, you will recall, uh, when, when he had dared to pronounce forgiveness of sins. That had alerted those Pharisees to him to begin with. And then it continued when the Pharisees challenged and questioned Jesus, uh, who was openly cavorting with and entertaining sinners and the scum of the earth. They really found that to be very troubling about Jesus' life. And then, then it continued even further when they challenged him when they saw that his disciples did not do the things that were customary and were, were normal, uh, things like fasting. And when they didn't see his disciples doing that, that created even more sense of, of displeasure with Jesus. But the straw that broke the camel's back came when the Pharisees watched and determined that Jesus did not revere the Sabbath and obey the Sabbath laws the way that they believed and the way that they interpreted them to be obeyed. And so furious were they, so hardened in their hearts and filled with hate and rage at Jesus that, that Mark tells us that they went out immediately and they linked up with this group called the Herodians. And together they began to plot how they might destroy Jesus. And that's actually where we begin this morning. I want to go back and pick up at verse 6, which basically tells you that part of things. And then read down through verse 19. That's going to be our text this morning. So hear the word of God this morning. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him, that is Jesus, how they might destroy him. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great multitude from Galilee followed him. 
and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw it, fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. He sternly warned them that they should not make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed twelve that they might be with him and that they might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanagaris, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, better translated Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And then Mark adds this, and they went into a house. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, we thank you for your word and for your giving it to us. Thank you that it penetrates our hearts and examines us. Lord, it's not just something that we examine, but it's something that examines us. And it, it throws our lives into the full view of your grace and mercy. And I pray that that would happen for us today as we examine your holy word. Lord, we would not just be those that look at it in a technical sense. Father, we would look at it from the sense of what impact it should make upon our lives. We know that it penetrates our hearts, exposes us. We pray that it would have that effect on us today that our lives might be truly changed by the power of your word and your Holy Spirit working through it in our lives. This we pray in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. Now, as you may have noticed as I was reading this passage for you this morning, this passage really breaks down into two halves. The first half really occurs there from verses 6 through 12, and that actually provides for us the setting. It kind of gives us the backdrop. It sort of tells us the summary of the situation that was taking place when Jesus does what he does in the second half. And the second half begins there in verse 13 and works through verse 19, and there we find that Jesus calls to himself his 12 disciples. So we might outline the passage this way very simply. We would say that verses 6 through 12 provide us with the setting of the disciples' call. Verses 13 through 19 provide us the nature and the call itself. So let's begin by looking at verses 6 through 12 and, and the setting of the disciples' call. And in doing so, let me direct you to the first point on your outline that I've included for you there in, in, your, uh, in your bulletin this morning. The first point that I believe that we understand from this text simply is this. Number one, the call of the 12 disciples came amid an escalating opposition to Jesus and the exploding popularity of Jesus. It came amid the escalating opposition to Jesus and the exploding popularity of Jesus. Now, I've already pointed out to you the escalating opposition. 
that Jesus faced at the hands of the Pharisees. Verse 6 tells us that the Herodians are now involved in this, uh, this opposition as well. And so what we learn is that Jesus is being opposed by two different groups. He's being opposed by the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees, as well as the political leaders of his day, the Herodians. And the Herodians, their very name tells us that they were in full support of King Herod who ruled Israel under the thumb of the Roman government. Now, no doubt these two different groups had been observing Jesus for a while. We've already read about how the Pharisees had been observing Jesus. And, and their assessment to begin with was probably that of suspicion. Who is this upstart? Who is this guy that claims all of this authority and does all these things? But that suspicion moved to irritation as he began to move among the people and lives began to be changed and as they began to analyze the things that he did and the things that he said. And then that irritation had now blown into a full swell hatred of him. The Pharisees hated him because they deemed him to be a threat to the religious establishment, the establishment over which they had authority. The Herodians, well, they opposed him because his exploding popularity was really seen as a threat to an already tenuous political and power structure there in the country. And beginning there in verse 7, we see just how popular Jesus had become. We read that he and his followers moved out of the city in which the last episode that we read about him being in the synagogue, he moves out of the city and he moves down to the Sea of Galilee. And when he does, a group of people follow him down there. But it's not just any kind of group. It is, as Mark describes it, a great multitude from Galilee followed him. But we must also note that it was not just people coming from Galilee. Mark tells us also that they came from Judea, points south, and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and beyond the Jordan. They also came from points north and, and west of where the Sea of Galilee was located, from the area of Tyre and Sidon. And so what that tells us is, is that people came from north, south, east, and west to where Jesus was. They, came, they were Jews, they were Gentiles, they were mixed races who were coming to where Jesus was at because they had heard of him. Many of them traveled many miles, lots of times days, if not weeks, by foot to get to where Jesus was. And though you already know this, it bears contemplating that all this news about Jesus, his reputation for being a teacher and a healer, all of that news had gotten to these outlying areas without the aid of newspapers, cell phones, the Internet, any of the ways that we communicate and read things today. No, the information about Jesus got to these long-distance outlying areas by the mouths and by the words of those whose lives had been impacted by his ministry there in Galilee. Just to reiterate just how many there were that came, Mark repeats himself and he reminds us that it was a great multitude that when they heard how many things he was doing came to him. Now I think it's important that we understand, just as we've noted in the past, that the agenda of these crowds when they came to Jesus was really different from the agenda that Jesus himself had. Back in chapter 1, you'll recall that we noted that the crowds kept pressing in on Jesus because they desired to be healed of their many diseases. In fact, the pressure on Jesus became so great that you'll recall that he said at one point, he says, I must leave this town and go to other towns that I may preach the gospel because that is the reason that I have come. In other words, the, the, the clamor of the people 
to clamor around Jesus and the crowd around Him for healing actually threatened to eclipse the primary reason that Jesus had come, and that was to preach a message of repentance and faith in light of the inbreaking and imminent kingdom of God. And the struggle between these two competing agendas well, had followed Jesus throughout His ministry thus far. And, and once again, we see here in chapter 3 that the, that the folks were still streaming to Him by the thousands, not so much that they could hear His message of repentance and faith, but so that they could be healed of their sicknesses and be healed of their diseases. But even so, notice that Jesus' goal of preaching and proclaiming the good news, that was still His highest priority. And we can learn that from a little tidbit of information that Mark includes for us in verse 9 that we might just pass over and misinterpret if we don't consider exactly what he's telling us. In verse 9, we read that Jesus instructed his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. Now, from what Jesus says, we recognize that the multitude's desire to, to touch him and to be healed by him created a, a really a dangerous scenario for him. So Jesus calls for a boat. And on the surface, what we might think is that that boat was there for Jesus to get away from the crowds. That it was, it was there to provide him some safety and some security. And to a degree, that was true. But, but I don't believe that this boat was there as an escape plan. It wasn't like a, an escape vehicle that was kept running outside, you know, so that he could go and get in that thing and, and get away from everybody really quickly if he needed to. No, no. Rather, I believe that what we see, the purpose for that boat is better clearly identified by how Jesus used the boat a little later. As a matter of fact, if you're there in chapter 3, just you may not even have to turn a page. Just look at chapter 4 for a second. Verse 1, verse 2, very similar scenario is taking place that Mark alerts us to. And he says that Jesus began to teach by the sea and a great multitude was gathered to him there again so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. And look, then he taught them many things. Now, what we see Jesus using a boat for there, I think very clearly is probably why he's using a boat here in chapter 3. It was, it, the boat was going to serve as a mobile floating pulpit for him. It was a floating platform on which he could gain some distance from the crushing, pressing crowd, but still be able to address them and still be able to teach them and to preach to them the wonderful words that he had come to bring. Now, as Jesus used this method of getting in the boat and pushing away from the shore so that he could continue to preach and to teach, I can't help but wonder just how many disappointed people there were left on the shoreline. I can't help but wonder how many frustrated and exasperated people there were when Jesus pushed away and began to preach and to teach because you realize for them, they had come to be healed. They had come to be touched by Him. Jesus was more concerned in preaching the spiritual nature of the things that they needed to understand about the coming and imminent kingdom of God, about the fact that what He had to teach them were eternal significance they were more interested in the here and the now, in their physical needs. I often wonder just how much like them we are. How we're more concerned today about the temporal issues, the things that we face in the here and now, the things that, that for us may seem to be the biggest issues that we face, and yet we don't give as much time and attention and thought 
to the eternal truths that God has given us in His Word. There's one more point that I think is worth observing in this part of the text, and that is that the demons were still trying to gain mastery over Jesus. You notice that whenever the demon-possessed would come into Jesus' presence, a lot of times Jesus would, would, would speak to them and they would, they would, have, to be, they would have to flee the, the, the humans in whom they inhabited. But whenever they did, a lot of times they did just what we learn here in verse 11, that they, they, they cried out, you are the Son of God. And, and in previous lessons, we've learned that that was a way in which the demons were attempting to try to gain mastery over Jesus. It was their goal in identifying him. The, the thought was is that by identifying one, you actually gained mastery over them. You consider what happened with Adam in the Garden of Eden. He was able to name the animals, and that, in, in, in that regard, he was given authority over them. Well, in the same way, in the demons being able to name Jesus, they felt like they were able to gain mastery over him. But Jesus was not having any of that. Jesus would not allow, allow them to have mastery over the humans in whom they inhabited. That's why he cast them out, but they certainly weren't going to have mastery over him. And so he tells them to be quiet and to, and to not say anything. And that also tells us that Jesus never uses demons to be his chief marketeers. It's just not the way he operates. So as we've seen in these verses, Mark really doesn't give us new information so much as he tells us things that we've already read before, but he allows us to see that, that everything that has been happening in Jesus' ministry up to this point is becoming amplified and intensified. The opposition is growing minute by minute, day by day. The popularity of Jesus is also intensifying and growing day by day and minute by minute. And that gives us the significance, the setting, the painting of the picture that surrounds his calling to himself his 12 disciples. And that leads us to the second half of this passage that begins there in verse 13. Mark tells us that he went up to the mountain and called to him those whom he wanted. And they came to him. And then he appointed 12, and some of your versions will read, whom he also named apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power. And not all of your versions have this, but the New King James has. To, to, to heal sicknesses, and then, and then to cast out demons. Now, there are a number of unique things about this call that I think we should note. First of all, Jesus' call of the 12 disciples was really a radical departure from the culture of the time. The normal procedure actually worked in reverse. In, in the normal procedure was someone, if they wanted to study with a particular teacher or a rabbi they would apply for such a position. Much the same way that any of us, if we want to go to a university or college or place of higher learning, we would submit an application to that place in order to be accepted. And they would review our application to decide if we would you know, be worthy to, to come and, and learn from, from their staff and from their, their professors. Well, that's in many respects kind of how it worked in that time as well. Only you see Jesus reverses the process. Jesus instead recruits those that he wants to tutor. He called to himself those that he wanted. In fact, Jesus would tell his disciples later in John chapter 15, verse 16, he'd tell them, you didn't choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. In fact, John chapter 15, verse 16 is a commentary really on exactly what takes place here in Mark chapter 3. It summarizes it for us. 
But what I want to draw your attention to is the model of discipleship that Jesus employed. It's a plan that he put in place with his disciples that I think is worthy of our contemplation this morning. Notice the next point on your outline. Point number two, and also the very first sub-point underneath that, sub-point A. Notice this, Jesus' call of the 12 disciples led to their being appointed as apostles who would, A, be with him. In other words, Jesus' first priority for those that he called to simply, was simply for them to be with him, to, to accompany him, to shadow him, to, to, to be there with him as they watched his every move. Now, one author that I read this week said it this way. I wish I had come up with this, but I, I didn't. But he said this, In a world of do, Jesus wants us first to be. Think about that. In a world that is characterized by doing, Jesus' first concern is that we be. And here, he tells us his first concern for his disciples is that they be with him. That's exactly how he begins here. He called them to be with him, that they might be learners, that they might be students who watched him. It should be noted that at least five of them, we know Simon Peter, Andrew, James, John, Levi, also known as Matthew, they had been with him up to this point already, at least in some capacity. It's quite likely that all 12 of these disciples had at some point been with Jesus. But here, Jesus' call upon them is even more specific. He's calling them to an even greater commitment. In fact, Derek Thomas writes that they, along with the other disciples that Jesus called to him, were going to join the equivalent of the spiritual marines. They would eat with him. They'd have breakfast with him. They'd have lunch with him. They'd rest with him. They'd listen to him talk as they would walk along the road, along the Sea of Galilee, and as they would make their journey down south to Jerusalem. He goes on to write, he says, they'd listen to extraordinary sermons that he would preach. And he says this, and some of the most profound things they'd ever heard would be those sermons that would move them to the very core of their being. As I said, in a world of, of do... Jesus first wanted his disciples to be. But I think it's also important we note that, that being absolutely leads to doing. In fact, notes, note the next two subpoints under your point number two there. Jesus' call of the 12 disciples led to their being appointed as apostles who would be, go out and proclaim him and see, exercise his authority. That's what Mark tells us at the end of verse 14 and the beginning of verse 15. In other words, having spent time with Jesus, having watched him, having learned from him, his disciples were then appointed to be apostles who would be sent out to do the things that Jesus did. As apostles, which that term literally means they were ones who were sent out to fill the roles of a special messenger on Jesus' behalf, well, they would go out and they would preach the same message that Jesus preached concerning the need of, for faith and repentance in light of the coming kingdom of God. Furthermore, they would exercise His authority in casting out demons. And as we also will learn later in the ministry, they would have the power to heal diseases. All of this proved once again that the authority of God's kingdom, when it broke in, it invaded and it overwhelmed and it overpowered the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of Satan. 
And these 12 apostles were sent out with that same authority. So this was Jesus' ministry model. He called 12 to him to be with him, to spend time with him, to learn from him, and then he would send them out as his special messengers who would carry his special message of salvation and who would go in his special power and authority. Now, having given us this ministry model, Mark goes on to list for us the names of the 12 that Jesus called to him. And including Mark's list here in in chapter 3, we have four such listings in the New Testament that that identify for us the 12 disciples. You get another one in Matthew chapter 10. There's another one in Luke chapter 6. And then Luke repeats those who were called in Acts chapter 1 in the context of Judas being replaced by a man named Matthias. And so he lists the names of those 12 again for us there. I learned the names of the 12 disciples through a song. Some of you may know it. If you do, you get a chance to sing it. I learned it from my fifth grade teacher in school. And that's been like 100 years ago. And it stuck. And it goes like this. There were 12 disciples Jesus called to help him. Simon, Peter, Andrew, James' brother, John, Philip, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Judas, Simon, and Bartholomew. We're his disciples too. We're his disciples too. Wherever we may go, we are his disciples too. We're his disciples too. We're his disciples too. Wherever we may go, we are His disciples too. Now, you aren't charged for that. That's free. (laughs) But I've never forgotten their names. What's interesting is when you look at some of those lists, you'll see some of the names differ slightly. And the way that I can kind of maybe help you understand that is is because sometimes we're known by... You have somebody who's named Robert. Sometimes he's known as Robert. Sometimes he's known as Bob. Sometimes he's known as Rob. And since the first service probably told you all this, I gave this as a personal illustration in the first service, and I regretted it as soon as it came out of my mouth. But (laughs) here you go. I'm I'm Craig. That's my name. That's the, the name my mom and dad gave me. My brother, who is deceased, he grew up calling me Fritz, and I never knew why. I don't even want to know why. But my mother had a name for me that only my mother gets to call me. She has called me Craigie Poo. (laughs) The reason that I tell you all of that is is because sometimes people are known by other names by different people. And so when you read these lists of disciples, you may see slight differences, but just recognize... Some may call it Matthew, others may call him Levi. It's the same person. Here's the point. What's interesting about this list that Mark includes for us and that Matthew and Luke include for us is that this list of men that Jesus called, well, they were not men who most people would have chosen to be their disciples. These were not the erudite. These were not the educated. These were not the the well-connected statesmen in the land of Israel. No. Neither were they religious leaders. Not a one of them was a Pharisee. Not a one of them was a scribe. They were all, they were all simply blue-collar kind of ordinary Galileans who, by the way, always had a negative connotation because in Galilee they sort of had an accent 
And so everybody just sort of thought ill of them because they couldn't pronounce their words exactly the way the rest of Palestine did. These were just normal, everyday kind of guys. In fact, some scholars tell us just how young they were. They point to the fact that they believe that these 12 disciples were probably late teenagers, at the most early 20s, and that John, the youngest, could have been as young as 14 when Jesus called. Furthermore, from what we know about this group is that they were a very diverse group. Yes, there were two, at least two sets of brothers in this group. But there was also this guy named Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot was someone who, by his very name, tells us that he would have hated the Roman government. In fact, so zealous was he that many suggest that he had likely engaged in activities and uprisings against Rome. Imagine just how excited he would have been to be in a group with a man named Levi who had been employed by the Roman government to collect taxes from the Jewish people. To say the least, this was a motley crew formed of fishermen, tradesmen, radical types. There was at least a couple of mama's boys in the bunch. Little about this group would have impressed anyone and in fact, we find that in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. When they looked at some of the disciples that were walking around, the assessment of the people were all that they were just common, uneducated, ordinary men. I came across this fictional letter that was written by the Jordan Management Consultant Group who wrote an assessment to Jesus based upon his uh, calling of these disciples. Their assessment of Jesus' call was this. They said, Dear Sir, it is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background education and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept, and we would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience and managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter, for example, is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities for leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it is our duty to tell you that Matthew, also known as Levi, had been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. <laughs> James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered a high score on the manic depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness. He meets people well. He has a keen business mind, has contacts in high places. He's highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. Now, as I said, this is a fictional letter. But it does give you insight, doesn't it, as to how we might assess people based upon our experiences and the things that we think are the most important characteristics and traits in people. Well, what I want you to know is that Jesus chose these men, and he chose men that many of us would have never given a second look to. Philip Grand Reichen has commented this way. He says, by ordaining these 12 men, God was establishing a new Israel. Just as the 12 sons of Jacob founded the Old Testament people of God, so also the apostles established the foundation for God's new people in Christ. And he goes on to say, to this day, the church rests 
upon their ministry. That leads me to the last point that I want you to see this morning on your outline. The third point on your outline this morning is this. Jesus did not select his disciples based upon their credentials or significance but used 12 ordinary men to bring the good news of God's salvation to the world. So what Mark's done in this passage is, is that he summarized Jesus' ministry up to this point. He's shown us that the opposition to Jesus was escalating, and he's also further shown us that the popularity of Jesus was exploding. And it was under those circumstances that, and those pressures that Jesus decides to call to himself 12 ordinary men through whom he would spend time and with whom he would spend time and equip to go out and do the ministry of carrying the gospel message and combating the darkness of Satan. What remains for us this morning who read this passage of Scripture 2,000 years later is to ask ourselves this question. So what? What difference does all of this really make? What difference does what Mark has told us this morning and what Jesus did with 12 guys that we don't even know and don't know a lot about, what difference does that make in your life and in my life? What difference should it make in our lives? Well, to be sure, these 12 men were unique in their calling. And what we know is that the apostolic ministry of these men was unique to them and it has not been replicated and repeated but nevertheless, what we can know is that the calling of these 12 really teaches us some important things about our own service to Christ. And as that little song that I sang for you earlier made clear, we're His disciples too. Wherever we may go, and He calls us. We're His disciples too. You see, like those apostles, you and I, we're called to faith in Christ. And then we are also called to serve Him. And the model of ministry that Jesus employed with His disciples, He still uses that same model today. He calls us to be before He calls us to do. You may think, well, how can I be with Jesus? I mean, He's, he's ascended to heaven. I can't be with Him. I can't walk the dusty roads of, of, of Israel with Him. I can't, I can't watch and see how He does things. I can't understand how His teaching. I'll never hear a sermon that He preached. All of those things may be true, but you know what you do have? You do have God's holy word. God's word has been left for us, and he has also given us the Holy Spirit to help us be able to understand his word so that when we read it, we can begin to understand about who Jesus is and spend time with him in his word and in prayer. Perhaps spending time with him means that's what you need to do is spend more time reading his word, praying to him. Perhaps it means studying personally for yourself and getting involved in a Sunday school class. We have numbers of those here at Ivy Creek. Many seats that are available for many of you to become involved with. Maybe you'd like to be in part of, maybe to, to be with him means being involved in more of one of the, the small group Bible studies that we have going on. The truth is, you can be as close to Jesus as you want to be. Because the Bible is clear. Jesus says, all who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. This passage also tells us that once we have been with Jesus, which, by the way, is never something that we graduate from. Graduations were taking place all day yesterday, and I was seeing all the posts. It's a wonderful experience to graduate. It's a great time. 
But I want you to know, if you're a disciple of Jesus, there's never a graduation. It's a continued learning and being with Him all the days of your life. But then there will come that point when He sends us out to, to do. And when we go out, we go out in His authority to make an impact on the world by proclaiming the good news of the gospel. That doesn't mean that everybody's going to be a preacher. It doesn't mean that everybody is going to be a missionary to a foreign land. But it does mean that as His disciples, Jesus has called for us to take a stand for Him, to be faithful in pointing others to the same grace that has saved us. And it should be noted that to do that, it, well, it very likely cost us. I mean, after all, we live in a culture that is increasingly familiar with Jesus, even if their only familiarity with Him as, is as to use His name as a curse word. Nevertheless, Jesus is known in our culture today. Oftentimes, He's simply known as somebody who was a good man that lived a couple thousand years ago. He was a good man that taught good things, lived a good life, was a good example. But He is rarely known as being the only way, the only truth, and the only life, and the only way to the Father and eternal life comes through Him. It's our responsibility to take that message to a lost world. And when we do recognize this, the exclusivity of that claim, well, oftentimes people become offended at Jesus because of that, and they become offended at those of us who carry that news to them. It's a claim that to come to Him, you must abandon your hope in yourself. You must turn from all other affections. You must admit that you are a sinner who is not only unworthy of the salvation that is being offered to you, but you are unable to attain it for yourself. And oftentimes the message of the gospel is met with hostility and opposition. Yet, brothers and sisters, it is the only message that we have of hope that we can take to a lost world. Which is why the Lord still calls us. It's why He does just like He did with those first disciples. He calls us to come to Him to learn of Him, to get to know Him, and then to carry that message out into the world. And that leads me then to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. In a world characterized by increased familiarity with Jesus, but also growing opposition to Him, He still calls ordinary people like you and me to walk in intimate relationship with Him and to proclaim His good news to the world. I don't know where you are this morning in relation to the Lord's call upon your life. Perhaps you still stand outside the faith. Perhaps, perhaps you are still contemplating the truths of God's Word. If so, then I want you to know this morning that the Lord stands ready to save you and to forgive you of your sins if you will confess your sins, repent of them, and trust in Him and in Him alone to be your Savior. Perhaps you've done that. But perhaps you've not done much more. If so, then the Lord is calling you today to a deeper walk with Him. Perhaps, perhaps you need to spend more time reading and studying your Bible and in prayer. Perhaps you need to become involved in one of these Sunday school classes that we have here. That will provide you some accountability, will provide you some assistance from others who can help you grow in your faith. Or perhaps today the Lord is pressing you to go and to tell others about Him. 
And maybe the Lord has placed someone specific on your heart this morning. Perhaps his call means that he is leading you to become more bold in your testimony and living out your faith. I don't know specifically how this passage applies to every person in this room, but I do know this. The Lord still calls disciples, ordinary people just like you, just like me. And he does it so that he can change their lives by the power of the gospel of grace and that through them that same message may be taken to others whose lives he will also change. Brothers and sisters, this, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together.